Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 13. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Have a seat. Let's start with prayer. Lord, we come here this morning, and we bring in all of the things that have happened this week, good things, bad things. Things that we can be thankful for and things that we are sorrowful about. Lord, I I thank you that you bear with us in our weakness, in our failings. Lord, you have forgiven us in our sinfulness. Lord, I pray as we we look more deeply at your word this morning, I pray that your spirit would allow us to understand it more fully, to believe it more deeply, and to live it out more and more. We thank you. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Uh, this may come as a shock to many of you, but particularly in my growing up years, I was not what you might call popular. Yeah, I know. I know. Jaws on the floor. It is shocking. I was not one of the cool kids, if you will. It's hard to believe, really, it's, it is, because I'm so fantastically awesome now. 
But it took me a little bit to age to perfection, if you will, you know? But being that this was the case, and I assure you it was the case, I did not have a lot of other kids, a lot of other peers clamoring to be my friend or to invite me to, into their social circle or to their event or whatever it was. But by the grace of God, there were a few, a chosen select few, who welcomed me in. Mostly friends who were uh, friends from church, right? They were somehow able to get past my awkwardnesses, my immaturities, to get past my opinions and need to be right about things. That hasn't gone away, I don't think. To get past all my annoying habits and most certainly my comments and jokes that were either at best incoherent and at worst mildly offensive. Perhaps, most remarkably, their families even welcomed me into their homes and into their lives. I ate meals with them. I went to events with them. I was disciplined by them even. I was not a part of their family, and yet in a way I was. I don't know if any of you had this kind of experience at all in your childhood or had any people in your life, that, the other families that were like that. It was more than just tolerating my presence, though I'm sure there were moments where that was all it was, that that was all that they could do is just barely tolerate me. And yet it, it was more. In, in time, I began to see and believe that, that even if I... Even if I messed up big, even if I did something incredibly foolish, even if I really, really blew it, these people, they would still love me. They'd love me enough to tell me I was wrong and whatever it was, but then they'd also love me enough that I'd still belong. And that had a deep and profound impact on my life. I mean, aren't we all looking for this kind of thing, this kind of sense of belonging, of family? All of Romans 14, 1 through Romans 15, 13, it's one big unit of thought with one major theme. You see it repeated at the beginning in chapter 14, Verse 1, I'm sorry, verse 3, and we see it repeated again towards the end in chapter 15, verse 7, and this is the theme, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. The word for welcome in our passage, it carries this idea of accepting someone, accepting them into, their, into your home, accepting them into your social circle. The very thing that these friends and these families did for me in my childhood, and particularly in my teen years. It's not merely something, though, that a church does. It's not merely an attitude, perhaps. It is a sort of orientation towards other believers to be welcoming to them. 
And this is how community between believers is to be defined, or at least in part. And this whole section, it's really broken up into four subunits. And we looked at two of them last week, if you remember. We had this general command in chapter 14, verses 1 through 12, to not pass judgment on one another, to not despise one another over what is called matters of conscience or matters of indifference, right? And then in verses 13 through 23, there was a command to the strong, if you see that, to not put a stumbling block in the way of the weak. Today, we're going to look at two more sections, the second two sections of this kind of block of the letter. And we're going to see another command to the strong in verses 1 through 6, and we're going to see a final general statement to all believers in verses 7 through 13. Now, this is interesting to me as I thought about this over the last two weeks, because there's a lot of talk in our world about acceptance, right? To accept and to welcome people accept or welcome people for who they are. We want to feel like we belong. The world, it can give us a sense of belonging in different groups that we're a part of in different social circles or different causes or whatever. It can give you a sense of belonging. And there is something real there, something that is deeply ingrained in us that the world is actually tapping into. I believe something that God has actually given to us, that, that He has designed us for this sense of belonging, to belong. But our experience in the world and in life overall can be less than welcoming at times. Too often this sense of belonging in the world especially, it breaks down the thing, the things that we're told shouldn't matter turn out to be the things that tear us apart. Sin gets in. See, we feel great in our circle, in our community, until someone does something that hurts someone else, right? Until someone does something that we don't like, that bothers us. And then there isn't enough substance to the belonging that the world offers to support the weight of that sin. And it falls apart. The world, I think, is touching on something real. But it's hollowed it out. It's hollowed it out. What I want to present to you is this. The way Christ welcomes us is different. It's better. And so we as the church, we have something better. We have something better to draw on in our community as we seek to welcome one another as we are welcomed by Christ. We have something real. True. We have something that's not hollowed out, but it has substance. It has weight. It is solid. It can bear with our weaknesses and even with our sins. 
So I want to look at four reasons that the church should be better at being a welcoming community. Four reasons from our text. We should be better. We're going to talk about a better example. We're going to talk about a better purpose. We're going to talk about a better means. We're going to talk about a better promise. Example, purpose, means, promise. I almost did all P words, but then I thought, you know what, that's, no, we're not going to do that this morning. So we have a better example. Verse 1, it says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Last week we said that the weaker brother or the weak in faith is one who has a reservation about something God has not commanded. So you have things that God has said, do these things. You have things that God has said, do not do these things. And then there's a whole slew of things about which God has not directly commanded. And some people can have reservations and some have freedom in Christ to do or to not do those things. And so the weaker brother is one who has, who holds a reservation where God hasn't said, don't, don't do that thing. A reservation that the strong does not have. And the strong are to bear with the weak in these things. First, that is not to say, I want to be clear, that is not to say that the strong should be weak. It's not to say that the weak uh, are doing something better than the strong, and so the strong ought to adopt the things of the weak. That's not what it is saying. We are given a better example here. Strength is not bad. Actually, what's implied is that if you are strong, you're strong for a reason in this community. That God has made you strong for a reason. That the community that you're in needs you to be strong, needs you to maintain that strength and that power of faith for a reason. Because it's the only way a welcoming community can work. The weak here, they're not sinful, but their weakness is also not a virtue. It's a failing, it says. It is necessary that some are strong. Second, I want you to understand that this is not merely being tolerant. To say that it's just being tolerant would be to to lessen the command here, to make it less than what Paul is trying to say. It's not like the older brother whose parents make him take along his younger sibling when he goes out to play with his friends, like, oh, I guess if I have to, you can tag along. I guess I'll put up with you. You know what I mean? If you've been, if you weren't the oldest sibling, then you know how that feels, right? To be like, oh, I got to you are the oldest sibling, then you know it from a different standpoint. Those who are strong should not apologize for their strength. They should not give up their strength. But they should use it to bear with the weak, to fill the gap that's made in the fabric of the community by the weaknesses of those who are weak. 
And that happens when the strong don't seek to please themselves, but seek to please others. When we refuse to pass judgment on the weak, when we consider what may be a stumbling block for them and we avoid it, when we care about what makes for peace and mutual upbringing, if you remember that from last week, we fill the gap where the weaknesses of the weak create space. And Jesus is the example of this. His life was about not pleasing himself, but doing what would be good for others, ultimately what would be pleasing to God. And this quote in verse 3 is Christ, it's Christ taking on the reproaches that were meant for God. Christ took on such suffering and humiliation from the worldly powers of his time, the powers that be then, and he did it in submission to God's will for our sake. The obvious implication is this. Are you strong Christian, strong in our community? Are you willing to suffer and to be humiliated too, if that's what's good for God's? community. That's what God calls you to. Right? Think about this. No, pu- no human has ever had uh, more power than Jesus has. And then Jesus had in his incarnation. Right? The saying goes, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Right? The Bible says, uh, not really. The Bible says sin has corrupted us, not power. The power merely gives opportunity for that sin to manifest itself in greater ways, but it is not power itself that is the problem. It is your sin that's the problem. Jesus here, he doesn't suffer just to suffer. It's not that he's dying for more power. He isn't dying for more power. He died for a purpose, right? He died for a purpose. What's that purpose? And that gets us to our next point. We have a better purpose. The purpose the world gives us for welcoming others is essentially something like, please your neighbor for his pleasure. Make them feel good. There's always a limit to this, isn't there? I mean, think about this. The limit for the world is one's own pleasing. I will accept you so that you feel good as long as you accept me so I feel good. There's the limit, isn't it? I will accept you so you feel good as long as what makes you feel good doesn't interfere with what makes me feel good. And there's the limit. There's always a limit. There's always a limit. What is that standard? For the world, that standard, the purpose that guides is each person's subjective sense of feeling good. In this system, whether you are talking about believers or non-believers, there is an inevitable collision of desires. It's just a matter of time. You getting what I'm saying? What's the purpose that we see for strong believers then with the weak? What's their purpose for not pleasing themselves? 
It says it right in the text. For his good, to build him up. For his good, what do you mean? The purpose that guides us is what we saw in Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed any longer to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable, that is pleasing, same word, and perfect. That is our standard, the will of God. That is what determines what is good. That is what determines what builds someone up. That is what drives us to not please ourselves, but to please others. Not that they might feel good, but that they might be good. We welcome one another because it is good by God's definition because it works for their true good. That is their conformity to Christ. It's for this purpose that we don't please ourselves. It's for this purpose that we're willing to suffer so that others might be sanctified more and more into Christ. And in the process... We too are sanctified because what are we doing but being like Christ? Someone described it like this. What Paul is commanding here is not that we would give in to one another, rather that we would be giving up ourselves for one another. And there's a critical difference between those two, right? Giving in and giving up. There's a huge difference. The world says, accept and approve me as I am. The gospel is that Christ accepts us in order that he might transform us into what God approves. It's not merely acceptance. It's transformation. Giving in and giving up can at times, from the outside, look very similar. From the outside, we might see a strong believer giving up oneself and think that perhaps they're giving in. But giving in is driven by a sense of obligation to subject oneself to the weaker brother. Giving up is an obligation to subject oneself to God for the weaker brother. Giving in is driven by a sense of, uh, is, is, has as its goal getting the acceptance of the weaker brother. I give in to you because I must just keep hold of your acceptance of me. I can't lose this sense of belonging. I can't lose this sense of being, feeling welcome. And if I, if I don't give in to you, then I might lose that. And so I, so I have to give in. But, but giving up is different. Giving up has as its goal giving acceptance to the weaker brother in order that they might be built up and strengthened because you don't need to get their acceptance. You're the stronger brother. You know that you're accepted in Christ. So you can let that go. And you can give up yourself for the sake of another. You see the difference. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 I think is helpful it says, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with 
them all. Patience with a weaker brother will almost always appear to another brother who is weak in a different area to be giving in when it's actually giving up. A few weeks we'll have the new year. I don't know, maybe you do this, maybe you don't, maybe you've tried in the past to make a New Year's resolution. If you have, then almost certainly one of those New Year's resolutions was to get in shape because that's what you do, right? I mean, you make the resolution and if you go to a gym, then you know that like for two weeks, a bunch of people are there and you're like, ah, it's the worst two weeks of the year if you're a regular gym goer. So you you can't use the machines you usually use because people are in the way and then, oh, just wait two weeks, they'll be gone. We know that we need to get in shape, and, and, and we run into the gym, and, and what happens is you do way too much, you get super sore, you can't function in your normal life, and you're like, this is terrible, why did I decide to do this, and you don't go back. That's what happens, right? The art, I think, of being a personal trainer is knowing how to get someone going, how to encourage them, how to, how to help them along right, and yet be patient where you need to be patient so that they continue to go. We are strong brothers. You are to be like spiritual trainers. Like spiritual trainers. Admonishing the idol. Now, yeah, you need to get in the gym. We got to do this. Encouraging the faint-hearted. Helping the weak, but being patient with them all. But the difference for us is this. The difference is we're also on a team together, right? And there's a game to play. And the game's a serious one. And when you get in the game and there's someone who is weak and you are strong and you have to fill the gap for the team... To help the team where that person has a weakness, that can at times be frustrating. It would be frustrating when you have to pick up the slack. But this, I, I think, it's more, it's more of an art than a science, right? It, 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 it takes us growing stronger ourselves and listening to the Holy Spirit and how to help the weak brother, the weak sister in Christ along, encouraging them to get stronger while also carrying the extra weight. And I think we're all going to mess this up at different times. And certainly I've pushed people when I shouldn't push people. I've criticized where I shouldn't have criticized. I've otherwise not born with the weak very well. We've all messed this up. But I think if we keep Christ's example in front of us and we let uh, his, this purpose guide us, then we'll do better than not most of the time. Plus, friends, we have a unique weapon as well. Did you know? We have a unique weapon in this fight, in this endeavor. 
we have a better means. We have a better means. What, are the me- what means does the world give us for welcoming others? The means the world uses tends, tend to be transactional. If you welcome me, then I feel welcome and I will welcome you. I accept you more or less to preserve my own acceptance. The problem is, at the core, this is a selfish motivation that results in two fatal flaws, I believe. One is that it's primarily based on fear. It's primarily based on the fear of losing something, not giving something. It uses the risk of your loss of acceptance to preserve what I don't want to lose. And second, because we're all prone to sin and selfishness, inevitably someone will either not be accepted or because we, are, we just don't know everything, we lack complete knowledge, we will at least think that we are not accepted and we will react as if we are not accepted. And what happens is then the welcome bus runs out of gas, right? Paul, Paul, his prayer points to the first of our means by which we can be a welcoming community in verse 5. Verse 5 says, uh, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony. Literally translated, it says, may God, who is the source of endurance and encouragement, that, that he might grant us to live in harmony. It's only from him that we can even do this. He is the source of our ability. If that source does not come from him, if it comes from somewhere else, if it comes from something that we're just trying to well up inside of us, we will not be able to endure in this endeavor. I want you to know the secret that does not exist inside of you. You are not that good. I don't mean that in a mean way. I just mean that in a matter-of-fact way. You're not. And any honest evaluation of your own life will show you that fact. You need something else. And that something else is God. Second, in verse 7 We can do all of this because Christ already did welcome us. If you are a believer, if you're a Christian, if you are in Christ, if if your faith is in him and if you have trusted in his grace through what he did on the cross and his resurrection, then you are already welcomed. He's done it. You don't have to do anything else to be welcomed. He became a servant, it says, to the circumcised, that is to the Jews, to show God's truthfulness. He came as a Jew doing all that Messiah was to do to confirm all the promises that God had made, and they are all fulfilled in him. But it wasn't just to make the Jews feel good and feel all welcomed or even to be welcome, but that through them, that through him, he might make a way for the Gentiles to be welcomed as well. And this, for the Jew who is reading this, would have been a bombshell. It would have been remarkable. 
Jesus is more than just an example to us. If we are both in Christ, if you're in Christ and I'm in Christ, then we are both welcomed by Christ into the same community. Like, get, get this for a second. I am not saying that if you're in Christ and I am in Christ, then we both ought to be welcomed into the same community. What I am saying is that if you're in Christ and I'm in Christ, then we are. We are in the same family. We are both part of his church. We will spend eternity together. You've been to a friend's party. You're invited to a friend's party, and that friend invites his friends, right? From, but, but, but his friends are from different spheres of his life. He's got his church friends. He's got his work friends. He's got his hobby friends, right? You, you've experienced this, and you go to a party, and you're like, I know a third of the people here, but because two-thirds of them are from other spheres of this friend's life, I don't know them. But we're all friends with the same person. It's kind of like, well, I mean, if you can be friends with him and I can be friends with him, then I, <laughs> we ought to be able to figure out how to be friends, right? But it's more than that. 1 John 1, 3, it says this, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Listen, that which we have seen and heard, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that, that Christ, that God loves and saves sinners, rebel sinners like you and me, through Christ's life, death, and resurrection, this is the thing that He has proclaimed to them. Why? So that you too may have fellowship with us. What He's saying, what John is saying is because you know the gospel and you believe the gospel and I know the gospel and I believe the gospel, we have fellowship with one another. Period. And we have fellowship with the Father and the Son together. Because Christ made himself a servant, he made us family. And when it comes to being welcomed into this family, all other divisions... All other differences are irrelevant. Every worldly category that we try to put on people, they are irrelevant. There are no cool kids and not cool kids here. It's always only those who are in Christ by grace through faith and those who are not those who are welcomed in through Christ and what he's done and those who are not. Even when I don't think I'm accepted in, in a moment or in a situation or with a particular relationship or whatever it is, ultimately, if I am in Christ through faith in what he has done, I am good. That may be a bummer in the moment. It may be a bad situation, something that I wish was different, but I have no reason to fear because I am good in Christ. Well, that leads me to uh, my last point here. 
our last reason, we have a better result. We have a better result because we have a better promise. Verse 4, it says, what Christ did was written of in former times. It wasn't written ahead of time for Christ's reason or for his sake that he might be born uh, and go, oh, wow, look, the scriptures say this. I guess I'll be all right. Like he knew it was written for our sake, for us. None of the reproaches Christ bore were meaningless or chance. God foresaw them ages before that Christ would put, take them on himself. And so when we understand God's word in this Christ-centered way, it encourages us and it gives us strength to endure because we realize that whatever we are bearing for someone else, God knew that too. He's got it under control. Whatever suffering reproach, reproach we have to take on ourselves, whatever we have to uh, do that, that is not looking to please ourselves, but looking to please someone else, these things aren't for nothing. God knew them. God in his providence is using them. And he promises us that it's worth it now because it was worth it then. If, it, if, if obeying God's will was worth it when Jesus did it, then it's worth it when you do it. That turns into hope, you see. And, and, and so we get to the end of this passage, right? We get to these last few verses, and we have four quotes from the Old Testament. And they all say essentially the same thing in slightly different ways. Why does he have four different quotes? Like, why couldn't he just use one? Why do we have to have these extra verses? Well, I'll tell you, this is the reason why. He quotes from four different places in the Old Testament. And it was a, it was a way that they would communicate in, in Jewish literature in the first century where they would they would quote from all the different sections of the Old Testament uh, uh, canon, right? Like he would, he would quote from the law, and he would quote from the writings, and he would quote from the Psalms, and he quoted from the prophets. And the reason was to show that all of everything that's in the Old Testament was saying this. It is so sure. It all was pointing to this thing. what's the content of the quotes? That the Gentiles would praise God because Gentiles are included in God's people and they are being welcomed uh, in. And, and that welcoming, it gives them hope. The gospel, the community that it creates, it has succeeded and it will succeed. Be assured of it. Indeed, it gives us hope, too, because, because that means that we, too, can be included. That you who have never felt like you belong somewhere, you can belong. You can be included, too. That that, that, that lost person in your life, they don't, they don't have to stay lost. That God can tear down whatever wall of hostility, if he can do that between Jews and Gentiles, he can do that between two believers who are crossways with one another. Like, he can do it. And that gives us hope. A wonderful thing 
about the opportunity that we have to welcome one another is we can give people a tangible experience of how they are welcomed in Christ. We can give people a tangible experience of what is spiritually true in Christ. That that's for some reason in God's sovereignty that he has chosen that his church, his sinful church, right? And we are all sinful. Can I get an amen? That he would use them, us, you and me, to do that. I think often we fail at welcoming one another. We often fail at welcoming one another when that reservation of the weaker brother, it, when it calls into question like our own position, our own thought, uh, our own acceptance in the community in some way. And we get a little bit nervous whether we realize this is what's happening or not, we, we begin to feel the need to justify or validate ourselves in our strengths or in our scruples. We begin to think that it's a zero-sum game. If you have a different conviction, if you have a different reservation than me, and you get accepted, then, then will I get accepted in this community? We begin to fight for something we already have in Christ. We begin to defend something that we don't need to defend because Christ has already given it to us. But see, Christ's community is supposed to work different. It works different than that because it's not based merely on our acceptance of one another, but, but on the acceptance that each one of us has in Christ. And so on matters of indifference or matters of conscience, I can welcome a brother who holds something different than I do, even... And it doesn't, it doesn't in the, even the slightest loosen the soil underneath my feet because I have solid footing in Christ because Christ has welcomed me. What truly sets apart Christian community as the only community that can really and truly be welcoming is what, it's what happens when there are matters of indifference. It's what happens when we sin against one another. Because in a sinful world, or, or even with believers who have indwelling sin, there will always come a point when we will mess this up, right? When my fellow Christian will sinfully reject me in some way, or when I will sinfully be unwelcoming to another in some way, that will happen eventually in any community. And yet, in the church, because Christ has welcomed me, I know that's not the final word on me being in God's family. I mean, 
And so with my familial tie, solid in Christ, based on his work on the cross, not based on what anyone else thinks or what anyone else has done or even what I have done, I can now seek to be reconciled with my brother in in whatever that sin is because I don't have to worry about whether or not I am accepted or not, whether or not I'm welcome or not. I don't have to worry about pleasing myself because Christ has given up to please me by bringing me into relationship with him. And I can patiently bear with the weaknesses of others. Not in order that they would stay weak, but in order that they would grow. And we would grow stronger. Let's pray.